scripture is from Genesis chapter 18, verses 22 through 33. That's Genesis chapter 18, verses 22 through 33. And this can be found on, in your Black Pew Bibles, and it's uh, page 16, you can find it. Genesis 18, 22 through 33. Please stand as we honor God with his word. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it that from you shall not judge of all the earth do what is just. And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for a lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his people. This is the word of the living God. Please be seated. The passage of scripture that is before us this morning is one of those passages that just amazes me. How dare any human being, a creature made of dust, believe that it is a right to interrogate the divine creator, to call God on the carpet, The God that we have seen over the past year is all-powerful. The the God who is filled with wisdom and knowledge, so much so that the Scripture says He even knows the thoughts and the intents of your heart. How dare we, as human beings, be so presumptuous as to challenge what God would say or what God would choose to do. And yet not only 
does Abraham have the right to do so? But God invites all of his children to come before him, to cry out to him, to come before that throne of grace and find help in time of need. Abraham had the right because God had come to him and said to him, Abraham, I am going to reveal to you what I am going to do because of my call upon your life, because of the blessing that I have bestowed upon you, because I have elected you, I have chosen you to be mine. And so too, we who have been chosen by God before the foundations of the world were even set in place, we are called to be His children, and as His children, we have the right to enter into His presence with confident assurance that He will hear us when we pray and that we can ask Him why He is doing what He is doing in the midst of this world. This is called intercessory prayer. An intercessory prayer, we learn from Abraham, is not grounded on whether or not you are good enough or whether or not you have great abilities. For Abraham acknowledges in deep humility that he is but dust and ashes. That in and of himself, he has no right to ask God why he is doing what he is doing. He recognized that he was unworthy apart from the divine blessing on his life to be able to plead his cause. This is a far cry from the Creflo Dollars and the Kenneth Hagins and the Kenneth Copelands and Benny Hens and and their cronies who dare, shall I say that, dare to command the sovereign Lord that he must do what they tell him to do. Their foolishness will be brought to light in a damning end on the day of judgment. But instead, through Abraham, we glimpse into the appropriate attitude that you and I should have when we come in prayer before our God. Abraham reminds us that the one to whom we are going in prayer, that he is the judge of the whole earth. So what right do we have to come before him apart from the right that he gives us as sons to plead our cause and to share our needs? We must come humbly in our attitude of our heart, or as Jesus put it, we must come as those who are poor in spirit. Basing our request on the perfection of God's holy word, of the promises that he has made, based upon the righteousness of God's very character and nature, and based upon the blood of Jesus Christ. And so I urge you to pray. I plead with you to come before the throne of God and to make your requests known to Him. 
but to do so with deep humility and great honor for the one with whom we have to do while we come with confidence and boldness in his presence. With Moses and Ezekiel, with Daniel and John, may we tremble before the Holy One, even as we with confidence let our requests be known to him. And so, as we look at this passage this morning, our theme states that the basis of our confidence in prayer rests upon the assurance of the unchangeability and the perfection of God's character. You and I dare to go before God, not based upon your goodness or my goodness, not based upon any ability that we have, but based upon the fact that God is unchangeable, is perfect in all his ways, and yet he allows us to be called his children, and therefore his children to come to him and to speak with him. And so this morning as we marvel at Abraham's confidence, his boldness as he comes in prayer before God, let me draw your attention to two questions that are raised by Abraham in this passage. The first question goes to the very heart of evil in this world. Why does it exist? The question that Abraham is, in a sense, asking God, why does God tolerate the wicked? Why does God put up with the wicked in this world? Why doesn't he do something about it? And of all the questions that I've been asked throughout my life as a Christian, as a minister of the gospel, as unbelievers question Christianity and the, the issues of Christianity, which should make me stop and pause here and put in a advertisement again for tonight. Okay, Come and ask those questions. If you remember, you get to ask the questions downstairs uh, of what we're doing in the church. If you are not a member, you get to ask questions up here that are life-changing and powerful. So join us at 6 o'clock this evening for Truth Today, Faith Tomorrow. But unbelievers are always asking questions of Christians. And this question has been raised more than any other, at least to me. If God is infinite in wisdom and knowledge, if God is loving, then why does he allow the wickedness, the evil that is in this world? Yet in asking that very question, those who are asking are acknowledging that God, if he exists, has the absolute right to judge the wicked and to destroy them. It's this truth that brings us to verse 23 in our text. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? As you look at that, you realize that he is not questioning whether or not God has the right to sweep away the wicked. 
God has that right. And those who raise the question of evil in this world, there's a reason for doubting the existence of God, put themselves into a dilemma. They're declaring that if there is a God, that he ought to destroy the wicked. But if there is no God, then wickedness is just part of the world. Evil is just part of nature that's out there. If there is no God, and there's nothing we can do about it. We're caught between that dilemma. If there is a God, he has the right to punish. If there is no God, then you have to put up with evil because there's nothing that can be done to stop evil in the world. So if there is a God, why does he tolerate the wicked? Well, notice, Scripture tells us that God is patient for the sake of the godly. God puts up with the wicked in this world for the sake of the godly. He is patient. Well, God cares about every individual in creation because he created them. He wove them together in the mother's womb in spite of what the New York state government seems to think. The question of evil goes to a much larger issue. Those who ask the question about a good God tolerating evil tend to think that they're exempt. God should punish the evil, he should punish the wicked. But I'm obviously not wicked or I wouldn't want God to punish the wicked. That's contrary to what the scripture says about the human race. The scripture rightly states that every human being from conception on has a heart that bends towards sin, that desires sin, that wants sin. No one teaches a child to be rebellious, to be selfish, to be manipulative. They know how to say no before we as parents know how to say no to them. It comes naturally to every single human being to be selfish, self-centered, and therefore wicked. So if God were to act against the wicked, God would have to destroy everyone, every single human being. Evil is not just what people do. Evil is what everyone does because their hearts are altogether evil. God tolerates the wicked so that he might bring some into a personal relationship with him, so that he might bring some to become his children out of the midst of a wicked world. So he holds off his judgment until the right time. That's why Abraham asked this very important question, will you sweep the righteous away with the wicked? In other words, God, we know you're going to sweep away the wicked, but what about the righteous? Now for Abraham, that question was, a little bit self-serving, a little bit personal, because Abraham was mostly concerned about Lot, his nephew. But for us today, as Christians, our family extends to the ends of the earth, to the whole world, to every single Christian living in this world wherever they are, for they are our family God has made promises. He made a promise to Abraham about how all the nations would be blessed 
through Him and through Christ, through Christ into the church. It's to that end that Peter, in answering this very question, why does God tolerate wickedness in this world, responds in 2 Peter 3, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This is a very important passage. It's important to know what this passage is teaching. And when it makes that statement that any should perish, it's not talking about every single human being, not willing that any should perish or every single human being, but he is talking about the elect. The Lord is withholding his judgment against the wicked for the sake of his elect. That passage is very clear that he is talking to you, that is, to the elect, to the believers, that he is talking to them and to those who would join them as believers. God cares about the godly, those who have been made godly through faith in Jesus Christ. But notice God is also patient for the salvation of the godless. The scripture tells us that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Yes, he will wipe them off the face of the earth. But he does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. Even when Judas was about to betray our Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus did everything possible to get Judas to repent. To get Judas to the place where he'd realize what he was doing wrong. To confess that and turn from it. The Apostle Paul describes God's attitude toward the godless in Romans 2, where he wrote, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God does not destroy the wicked. He tolerates the wicked in this world so that the message of salvation can go out, so that men, women, boys, and girls can hear the truth of the gospel and turn and be saved. The fact that God doesn't eradicate the godless is so that the elect might be saved, but also so that no human being will ever be able to stand before God and say, you never gave me a chance. We read in Romans 1, that everyone who will be cast into hell, everyone who goes there goes by choice. They choose to suppress the truth. They choose to ignore God. They choose to push God away. Even the atheist Richard Dawkins admits that it appears that we exist in this world by some divine fiat. That there must be a God. It appears that way. But then he goes and he says, but since there is no God, then it all happened by chance. When God took Israel out of Egypt, he sent ten plagues on the Egyptians. He did not send those plagues on the Egyptians to punish the Egyptians, though certainly it did that. But he sent the plagues on the Egyptians so that they would see that he is God. 
so that they would acknowledge that he is God, so that they would turn to him. And yet Pharaoh still hardened his heart in rebellion. No matter how powerfully God showed himself to be God, Pharaoh rejected that truth. He turned away. And what is true of Pharaoh is true of the vast majority of human beings on this planet today. God is constantly proving himself. He proves himself through nature constantly, revealing his character and his nature, the scripture says in Romans 1. He is also proving himself through special revelation. He has given us his word, the scripture. He has given Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, come in the flesh into the midst of this world to reveal the glory of God so that people might see God Turn and be saved. And he is constantly revealing himself in our conscience, showing us right and wrong, calling on us to turn from our sin, to trust in him. Yet it is human rebellion that causes the heart to reject God. Still, God holds off the destruction of the wicked. He still tolerates the wicked in this world so that that message of hope, the message of salvation, might go out to the world, that everyone throughout the whole of the earth, from Canada to Colombia, from Mexico to Mongolia, from Argentina to Angola, will be without excuse, that they will turn and be saved. Or they will stand before him on that day of judgment and they will know of their own heart's rebellion. But notice that God is also patient for the supremacy of his glory. Ultimately, the whole of God's revelation is given to us so that we might see and know the glory of God. In the end, God tolerates the wicked, allows them to stay in this world, the scripture says, for his glory. As Abraham stated, far be it from God to do anything that is not just and right. The prophet Isaiah got it right when he spoke on God's behalf in Isaiah 48. Here's what he said. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. In other words, I tolerate the wicked. I don't punish the wicked. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. In the end, on the final day, When God is seated to judge the earth, everyone, even his enemies, will have to acknowledge that God is just and right in what he does. God reminded Job that it's impossible for the human race to be able to comprehend all the things that God has to do to keep this world in balance, to make sure that everything is functioning and working perfectly as it should. And that includes even the wicked in this world. 
in spite of Satan's evil, in spite of human rebellion, even as creation groans awaiting the redemption of the sons of God, God's ways are perfect. They are holy and they are right. So that the prophet Habakkuk writes, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters cover the sea. God's excellent glory is why he tolerates the wicked in this world. Now, the first question automatically then leads into the second question that Abraham has asked. First question, why does God tolerate the wicked? The second question, growing out of that, will the God of all treat all justly? Will the God of all the earth, will he treat all justly? To ask what Abraham does in verse 25 is very important for us to understand. He says, far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it, far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? The implication is that the righteous must be treated justly. But what about sinners? Will they be treated justly as well? Will God, who created both those who become righteous and those who remain wicked, will he treat both fairly? Well, notice that God acts for the surety of the elect so that they might know that they are saved and safe in him. God acts on behalf of his people for the sake of his people so that they might have assurance whether it was under the old covenant or whether it is under the new covenant in the church, we have absolute assurance that the elect will receive the fulfillment of God's promise to those who are his. Paul, writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, declared that even the seemingly bad things that had happened to the apostle Paul, even those bad things were working for the sake of the elect. He says, therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. Is being stoned, is being bitten, beaten, is being imprisoned, is being shipwrecked, and all the other things that he talks about in 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians 11. All of those things, he says, they all, every one of them, all of them, he endured for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. And so it is that God even allows those things to happen to his people, what we would consider evil to happen to his people. He does so for the sake of his people. Joseph told his brothers that what they had meant for evil, God meant intended for good. In Romans 8.28, that off-quoted verse by us, informs us that God is working everything for the ultimate good of those who are his children, even those things, again, that appear to us to be evil. Mordecai reminded Esther that God had placed her in that position that she was in 
for the sake of God's people, even if it meant her death. Yes, God is at work in this world. And even in the midst of the wicked and evil things that happen, God is using those things to assure those who are His that He is working for their good. As Christians, we understand that the most horrendous act that ever happened in the history of humanity, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, His suffering, His death, came about for our salvation. God at work in the midst of suffering. Therefore, we can know with certainty that God's tolerance of the wicked in this world will result in the outworking of God's purpose and salvation for those who are His. But notice that God also acts for the saved in light of eternity. And this is a crucial point in this whole thing. When we ask why God tolerates the wicked, what we are really asking is why does God tolerate the wicked in this world at this time from this perspective of the here and now? So, why Did God allow Hitler to live when General Stauffenberger's briefcase was moved from where he had placed it to the other side of the table so that when it exploded, it did not kill Hitler? Why did God allow that to happen? Why did Stalin live and rule for 25 years with the cruelty with which he ruled when his regime was so evil? These kinds of questions may seem important in light of the troubles that we're facing on a day-to-day basis throughout this world in this life. But God's purposes are not for here and now. They are worked out for the here and now, but God's purposes are for eternity. Jesus reminded the apostles of that in Matthew chapter 13. He was told the parable of the wheat and the tares of the wheat and the weeds. And He told them that when the weeds are growing up in the wheat field, the servants turned to the master in this parable, and they they said, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At the harvest time, I'll tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first, bind them in bundles to be burned, and gather the wheat into my barn. Jesus, as he explained this parable of the the harvest, he told the disciples that this represented the end of time. God's final judgment on this world. God allows the weeds, that is, he allows the wicked to remain in this world in order to fulfill his eternal purpose amongst those who are being saved. How many people have come to know Christ as Lord and Savior because of trouble in their lives. Because of trouble and experiences that they have had that appeared to be harmful, but have led them to faith in Jesus Christ. Corey Ten Boom lived during the time of the Holocaust and lived in one of those concentration camps. She learned to trust Christ. She went on to have a powerful ministry that was worldwide. 
thousands of people coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ because of her experience in the Holocaust. Johnny Erickson Tata also has a worldwide ministry because she became a quadriplegic in a diving accident. And the list goes on. Our salvation is dependent on the suffering, torture, and even death of Jesus Christ. He suffered at the hands of evil men, wicked men. Jesus turned down Satan's offer of having the whole world bow before him, enjoying all the comforts of this world and all the glories of it. He turned it down. Why? He turned it down for the greater good and glory of eternity. The secular world believes that suffering is an intrusion into the pursuit of happiness in this life. But as Christians, we see this world as an intrusion on the pursuit of eternal happiness in Christ. The mature Christian does not see God as tolerating the wicked. We know that God is waiting, waiting until the wheat, Christians, those who are going to come to faith in Christ until they reach its full number. And then all the wicked will be brought before the judgment seat of God. They will stand trial and receive the just recompense for what they have done in this world. Christians live in this present world as pilgrims, strangers, knowing that all the suffering is merely temporary in light of the eternal promises that God has given to us. Therefore, notice that God acts for the sanctity of his excellence. I want to close with several scripture passages that communicate the rightness in God's justice while he tolerates the wicked. The first one comes from Isaiah chapter 45. This is God's explanation. He says, I do these things so everyone will know there's no other God. From the east to the west, they will know I alone am the Lord. I made the light and the darkness. I bring peace and I cause trouble. I, the Lord, do all these things. The troubles of this life are working for the good of Christians. They're a reminder to you and to me that this world is not our home. When we go through suffering in this world, We do so, not as the world does, which sees this world as their home. We go through the suffering in this world knowing that this is just a temporary place, a temporary lot, and that all of eternity there will be no crying and no tears and no suffering and no pain and no death. So as Christians we are reminded that this world is not our home. But for the unbeliever, the suffering in this world is a constant reminder to them that this is simply a taste 
of the judgment that they will face for all of eternity because of their rebellion against God. Psalm 98 lets both the righteous and the wicked know that there is an end in sight. The scripture says, Before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth, he will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Because of God's perfect knowledge and infinite wisdom, everyone in this world will be brought before his throne and will be judged from the youngest child to the oldest adult, from Adam to the last person who will ever be born until Christ returns. You must face the fact, and I must face the fact, we will stand before the judge of all the earth. And unless we stand before him dressed in the white robes of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, because by faith we trusted in him, then we will hear those terrible words. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. Apart from the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ, all of the wicked and all the rebellious will face God's judgment. Why does God tolerate the wicked then? Will God be just? When he judges the wicked, though forced to face their own rebellion, will on that day, as they stand before God, still curse him. Though they see him in all of his glory, they will still be in rebellion against him. And for all of eternity, they will think that God is unfair. Even though in his patience, he gave them every opportunity to repent and continues through eternity to give them the opportunity to repent. For those who by God's grace have turned by faith in Jesus Christ, God's tolerance of the wicked and evil in this world is actually proof of God's perfection, of God's righteous judgment, so that we can declare with the psalmist, as we await the final judgment in eternity, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Abraham interceded on behalf of his nephew Lot. And so though his heart was humble and his approach was biblical, his ulterior motive was suspect. Still God heard his prayer And we will see in the next few weeks God's response to that prayer. But there is one who intercedes, not for a relative, but for his enemies. For you, for me. Abraham asked God to spare the righteous. But the fact is there were no righteous. Not even one in that whole city the whole of the cities of the plains. No one was righteous, and we'll see that in the next couple weeks. And the truth is, not even Lot was righteous. Jesus asked God to spare not the righteous, but to spare his enemies. And then he came into this world 
And he took the punishment that his enemies deserved, and he took that punishment on himself. He took on himself all of their evil so that he might provide the means for them to be forgiven. Jesus Christ is God's ultimate answer to the question of why he tolerates the wicked and whether or not he will be just. Turn to Jesus Christ and be saved. Trust in him. For only through Jesus Christ can we know the Father and can we be children of God. Only through Jesus Christ will we enter into the presence of God and hear him say, enter in to your rest. You will either face God with Jesus Christ as your Savior or you will face God with Jesus Christ as your judge. God tolerated the wickedness of Chris Gardner that I might be saved. The same is true of Elder Enrique Barahona, or Barbara Latesta, or Marie Bartos, and of everyone else seated in this room who has put their trust in Jesus Christ. We all deserve damnation. God showed both his grace, and his justice. When because he poured out his wrath on Jesus Christ, we then could be forgiven. Christ took our sins upon himself, and with that took all of the judgment of God, including my sin and those of all who have called upon the name of the Lord. The first auctioneer, Abraham, dared to approach the Lord to intercede on behalf of Lot because he knew of God's justice and he knew of God's perfection. And so too, we can come boldly before the throne of grace based upon the perfection of Christ's righteousness and of his judgment. If we are his children, we should pray And pray with conviction and pray with power, knowing that God will hear our prayer based upon what Christ has done. And so in conclusion, does your understanding of God's character and nature give you answers to the questions about life? Do you know him well enough? that you are not thrown off by the questions that the world asks? Do you know that God is good, just, holy, merciful, and gracious? And is your view of God leading you to pray powerfully and biblically because of what Christ has done and opened the way for us? Let's pray. Father, speak to us today. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me, Jesus said. For when we believe not only like the demons that God exists, but we believe that God sent his son, that you gave us hope 
we might be forgiven, that we might live in you, and that all things will truly work together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. Then we will pray with confidence and with boldness because we know that you are God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.